Our sermon this morning is on Psalm 33. Turn to Psalm, 30, Psalm 133 in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Psalm 133 on page 487. So turn to page 47 in your pew Bible. Follow along uh, in your own Bible or on the screen here. It's a short little psalm, just three verses. This is it. It's the entirety of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Last week, we finished up our sermon series going through 1 Kings. Uh, we spent about eight weeks going through that book, and we're going to go through 2 Kings later in the year, probably in the fall. Uh, this week, we're just going to, a little kind of palate cleanser, just to kind of re, you know, uh, kind of get, get ourselves a, a fresh slate for next week, we're going to start working through the book of Romans. So the book of Romans, we're going to take a while, probably uh, 50 to 70 sermons, maybe, going through the book of Romans, and so we'll take probably about a year or two off and on. So we'll be in Romans for a couple months, and then Second Kings, and then that'll take us into to Advent. But that's kind of where we're headed for the rest of the, of the year. But Psalm 133 in particular uh, is about unity, unity within uh, the people of God, unity in the church. The Psalm 133 is one of the Psalms of Ascents. If you look at the, the little uh, superscript, the, the, the description, uh, right, right next to where it's, you see 133 in your Bible, it says, A Song of Ascents of David. The Psalms of Ascents were songs that were sung as the people of God were journeying, they were ascending, they were journeying up the mountain to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on top of a mountain. It's a little bit confusing because it'll say they're traveling up to Jerusalem, but really they're traveling south from northern uh, Israel, south down to Jerusalem, but they were traveling up in terms of altitude or elevation. And so uh, the Psalms of Ascents were songs that the Israelites would sing as they were ascending the mountain on their way up to the to the top of the hill, to the city of Zion, to Jerusalem, where they were going to, you know, travel to worship God at the temple and things like, like that. And so one of the songs that they would sing on their way up the mountain was Psalm 133, about unity among the people of, of God, which is particularly timely for us right now in, in a cultural moment where unity is hard to come by. We are, I mean, I would, I would argue that we as a, as a people, as a society, are less united than we've been really in, in a while. We're, we're more polarized than we've been uh, for, for much, of my, much of my life. Um, it seems very difficult, maybe even impossible for some people to love or be united with uh, their neighbor who doesn't agree with them, to coexist with their neighbor who doesn't agree with them to live in relationship with their neighbor who doesn't uh, uh, agree with them. And so Psalm 133, I think, is timely and relevant and helpful for us to meditate on as we seek to be godly Christians in the church right now, in the, the world right now. So let's read it, and then let's take a few minutes to consider it and to, to meditate on it and to consider how, um, what it might be calling us to, to do and how it might be calling us to live as Christians. I'll pray, and then we'll, well, I'll read it first, and then we'll pray. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We pray that you would speak directly to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us, impress upon our hearts the the importance of being united, being unified as a body of believers, as a a flock of, of sheep, as a family of brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of sin where we fall short of this ideal. We pray that you would assure us of your grace and empower us with your spirit so that we might live out the truths and the, the commands that we read in this, in this passage. We invite you here with us this morning to speak to us and to form us and to make us more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So, um, so, short, sweet, simple, little psalm, right? Um, uh, two, you know, the, the, the main point is that unity, brothers dwelling together in unity is a good thing. It's, it's a glorious thing. He uses two analogies, oil being poured on the head in verse 2, uh, dew from Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion in verse 3. And then his conclusion is that it's, uh, it's where the Lord has commanded blessing and eternal life. So, so a simple uh, kind of a thesis in verse 1. Illustration in verse 2, illustration in verse 3, conclusion at the end of verse 3. It's simple. It's kind of easy to, to wrap our mind around. I want to just kind of make a handful of um, kind of observations, draw a handful of implications from this, this psalm about uh, Christian unity. The, the first two are both drawn from verse 1, that, that Christian unity is good and that Christian unity is pleasant. So we'll start uh, with it being good. Right, uh, how good and pleasant it is when when brothers dwell together in unity. So David is saying, unity among the people of God is a is a good thing. It's an objectively good thing. It's not a matter of preference. Some people like it. Some people don't. Right. It, it is it is fundamentally, objectively, irrevocably, inalterably a, a good thing. It's it's good for brothers to dwell together in unity. There there are you know whether it's Christians who are more fundamentalist or, or frankly, uh, secular people who are more fundamentalist who have uh, very angular views on certain issues and effectively have come to understand or live as if unity is not all that necessary and therefore all not all that good, right? Um, you know, unity is perfectly fine. I have no problem with unity, but, but the truth is what's more important. This issue is what's more important than unity. Right? You know, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be united with a person who does that, thinks like that, lives like, like that. Right? If you're going to do that or hold that belief, then I can't be united with you. Unity is not an option. It's off the, it's off the table. Now, the Bible does have a category for some things, some issues, some recurring behavioral patterns, some forms of unrepentant sin that should cause Christians to break fellowship. It should cause Christians to, you know, uh, withdraw away from someone or at least uh, make it clear to someone that there is not a, a gospel-centered uh, Christian 
united relationship, right? Paul talks about things like that in 1 Corinthians 5, sins that should cause us to break fellowship with others, or Titus 3, or elsewhere. So, there's times when, as Christians who are called to be united with other believers, there's times when we need to put distance between ourselves and others. But, Psalm 133 seems to imply that that shouldn't be our default posture. It shouldn't be the thing that we want to do. It's not what we, you know, do first. It's not, we're not excited about it. We're not hoping for it. We're not seeking it out and desiring it. Breaking fellowship or, or you know, kind of severing unity should be a last resort and not our first cause of, of action. And the reason why is because unity is objectively good. How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Our church's statement of faith uh, about the Trinity reads that we believe in one true and living God, eternally existing within three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature, yet they are distinct persons. And so the reason why, the reason why unity among the people of God is an objectively good quality that the people of God should be laboring for and cultivating and seeking among them is because unity, uh, at its most fundamental level, before it has anything to do with the people of God, unity is uh, an attribute of God himself. God himself is a community of three persons that are each distinct from one another. They're diverse and different from one another, but they're fully united together. So unity is, is a good thing. Unity matters to God because God himself is unified. He's united within himself. The Father loves the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Father shows the Son what he's doing. The Father is well pleased with the Son. The Son listens to the Father. The Son loves the Father. The Son prays to his Father. The Son sees what his Father is doing. The Son defers to the will of his Father and drinks the cup that the Father gives him. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. The Spirit's job is to teach the people. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Spirit testifies about the Son. The Spirit speaks what he hears about the Father and about the Son. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons of the Trinity, are completely unified. They are in complete and total unity with God one another. And so that vision, that God's vision for his people is born out of, and it's a reflection of God's existence as the triune unified Godhead. God wants his people to bear his image, to reflect him, to resemble him, to look like him. And so God wants his people to be united together just as the persons of the Trinity are united together. And we see that all throughout scripture, right? From, from from the very beginning pages of the Old Testament on into the New Testament, we see this recurring theme of the unity of the people of God. God calls his people out of, his, out of Egypt in the Old Testament, not just some of them, uh, not, not just a small segment of them, but all of the people of God. He calls out together as a community. He leads them to the promised land as a community, right? In, in, their, in the, the pinnacle, right? In the, the, the high point of the the life and existence of the people of God in the Old Testament under the reign of King David, they're all united together. 
Things start to crumble. Things start to fall apart in the Old Testament when the kingdom is divided and the northern tribes of Israel kind of break off from the southern tribes of, of Judah. And there's disunity and there's, there's the, uh, the fellowship, the unity of the people of God is broken and things start to decline very badly. Right, so, so unity in the Old Testament, unity of the old God, of, of unity of the people of God is held up as an ideal. Same thing in the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, first chapter of the New Testament. Uh, Mary will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His people, plural, all of the people of God are going to be saved from their sins by Jesus. Not some, but all, because they're unified together. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. So John, in Jesus in John 10 is saying, God, as the good shepherd, has a, a gathering and a unifying effect to his ministry. He gathers them together. He lays his life down for them. Wolves, on the other hand, the enemies of the people of God, they snatch the sheep and they scatter them. So the enemy scatters, but God gathers and kind of unites and brings together. Later he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking of the Gentiles, us. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd, a united flock, a united people of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about the people of God and the gospel of God, and he says, Jesus is our peace. Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was, uh, by virtue of Satan's attempts to snatch and scatter, there was a dividing wall of hostility that was dividing and bringing disunity among the people of God. Jesus abolishes, Jesus uh, destroys that dividing wall of hostility, and in doing so he has created in himself one new man in place of the two, thereby making peace. Jesus has reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. It's the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, God's ideal, God's vision, God's plan, God's will is for his people to be unified together. It's good for brothers to dwell together in in unity. I mean, you can even see this ideal when uh, God is establishing his church and establishing the ecclesiological offices in the church, member, elder, and deacon. Members are believers of God, regenerate people who, who walk with God together. Elders are shepherds who are called to teach and lead the people of God. But what, what are deacons? What do deacons do and why do deacons exist? The word deacon means servant. So deacons are kind of the, the lead servants in the, the church. But why Why does the office of deacon exist? What was the incident that prompted the creation of the office of deacon in the church? It was Acts chapter 6. And the the incident that was happening, that God said, this incident is so important that I need to address it and fix it and correct it, and I actually need to establish an office in the church that's going to circumvent it, that's going to keep it from happening in the future. The issue was... Uh, disunity. There was uh, factions in the church. There was resentment and hostility and disunity. And the elders get together and they say, someone needs to handle this issue. Someone needs to make sure that disunity does not grow and spread like a cancer. 
Someone needs to handle this issue and meet this need so that the church can be unified. The elders are busy uh, teaching and praying, so we need to install some deacons who can uh, serve and work to preserve the unity of the church, of the people of God. So if you're a deacon in the church, your main job is to preserve and uphold and work for the unity of the, the church, the unity of the people of God. That's the main reason why the office of deacon exists. <clears throat> so point one, uh, it's good when brothers dwell together in unity. It's an objectively good thing. The next point, though, is that it's also a subjectively pleasant thing to experience, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's not just objectively good because God is united and God wants his people to be like him and be united like him. That's true, but it's also pleasant. It's enjoyable, right? Unity, being unified with other believers is a a pleasant experience. We were created in the image of God. We were created, God himself exists in the confines of a relationship and God has created us to live in relationship with other creatures, to to know and be known and to, to love and to be loved. We were created to Experience transparency, vulnerability, intimacy, acceptance, love. God created us in his image to be in community with other people, which is why life-giving relationships are so compelling. It's why family is so compelling, and it's why isolation is so miserable and even dehumanizing, right? We were created for Relationships. There's a psychology professor who uh, wrote, wrote an article on solitary confinement, that kind of incarceration technique. He says, A robust scientific literature has been established uh, about the negative psychological effects of solitary confinement. The empirical findings are supported by a theoretical framework that underscores the importance of social contact to psychological as well as physical well-being. In essence... <clears throat> Human beings have a basic need to establish and maintain connections with others, and the deprivation of opportunities to do so has a range of deleterious consequences. A lot of big words there. What he's basically saying is solitary confinement uh, is inherently dehumanizing. It could even be considered a form of, of torture because you're depriving a person of something that is intrinsically, deeply necessary to who they are in their being. They, people, by virtue of being human, by virtue of being created in the image of God, need to relate to others, communicate with others, connect with others, experience others, listen and be heard, see and be seen. Right? That's all part of what it means to be a, a human. God is, a, is an experiential, relational being. God created us in his image, so we are therefore uh, relational, communal beings. And that's why it's pleasant to live in relationship and to dwell in unity with other people. The catch is, <clears throat> the catch is that even though the Bible says that it's pleasant to dwell together in unity with other believers— even though theologically we can understand that having been created in God's image, the most pleasant thing for us is to be united with other people, our sinful nature can deceive us and, and tell us and convince us that there's something more important than being united with other people, than having relationships with other people, and that is to get what we want, 
to, to have our preferences met, right? Our sinful nature minimizes the importance of unity and relationships with other people, specifically other believers, and it emphasizes and amplifies our desires, getting our way, having people defer to us, right? The most important thing in life is me getting my way. I want to be the one who makes all the decisions. I want to do whatever I want. I want to have complete authority. So the Bible says it's actually not all that important for you to always get your way all the time, but it is important for you to be in relationship with other people. Our flesh is going to kind of push back and say, it's not that important for us to be in relationship with other people. What is important is me getting my way all the time. This is why it's, that's why it's so foolish and so counterproductive for someone to forego life-giving, unity-strengthening relationships with other believers, with other people, and specifically with other believers. It's, it's foolish and counterproductive to, to forego life-giving relationships with other people for the sake of getting what I want, right? Or saying, because you uh, disagree with me on this, you know, non-essential matter, I am going to sever my relationship. I'm going to introduce disunity into our relationship because of this particular conviction that I have about this particular non-essential issue that you don't share with me. Because of that, we can't have unity. We can't have a relationship. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to reconcile with you. I'm not going to repent to you. I'm not going to give you the opportunity to repent to me. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to ask you to forgive me. I'm going to withdraw and pull away. We're essentially saying that it's more important Right, getting my way is more important than having a unified relationship with a brother and sister in Christ. Which, according to Psalm 133, and according to the overall, the overall kind of arc of Scripture, is just foolish and, and short-sighted. Right? Ask, ask any 90-year-old on their deathbed, like, what, 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 what are the most important things... To, to them, right? What, what's, what's more important to them? The, having gotten their way on some random thing that, that happened 10 years ago that they don't even remember, some random issue or question or disagreement, or relationships, right? Their, their spouse, their kids, their, fran- their friends and family, their church community. Right? We all kind of instinctively know that that unifying, unified relationships are more important than always getting our way. We just struggle to believe it in real time and to practice it in real time. But deep down we know it. That's why we have friends. That's why, that's why we get married, right? I mean, marriage is the epitome of foregoing complete and total autonomy that I had and enjoyed before marriage and giving that up for the sake of having a relationship, being united with another person. When you're single, you do whatever you want. You eat whatever you want for dinner. You don't have to run it by someone else. Watch whatever you want on TV. You don't have to run it by someone else. Get whatever you want whenever you want. But the problem is that you're by yourself. And that's, that's inherently unpleasant. Right? We all recognize that it's more pleasant to dwell in unity with other people than it is to be alone and get what we want all the time. That's why, that's why the vast majority of people get married. 
right? If you, if you kind of take that short-sightedness of saying, I want what I want right now, and that's more important than having a, a, a united, life-giving relationship with another person, if you take that to its, you know, logical conclusion, you'd be a person who has everything you could ever want, all the money, all the possessions that you could ever desire in the world. Everything would work exactly like you want it to work. Your life would be the picture-perfect vision of exactly what you want it to be, and you'd be alone. And you would be unhappy, right? Because we were created for relationships. We were created for community. We were created to, to live with other people. So, dwelling in unity with other people is objectively good because it reflects God and his relating to other people, and it's subjectively, experientially pleasant. It's enjoyable. It's what we were created for and what we uh, ultimately want. Another observation, another implication of this psalm. So one, unity is good. It's objectively good. Two, unity is subjectively pleasant. Three, unity is not uh, uniformity. It's not being identical, exactly the same. And we can draw that conclusion from the analogies that he uses in verses 2 and 3. It's like precious oil running down Aaron's head onto his collar. It's like dew from Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. Two different illustrations, two different analogies that involve different elements that are distinct from one another and different from one another being joined together by another element that kind of flows down over them, right? Aaron's head and his beard is different than his collar. Those are different things. And yet the oil kind of runs down across them and kind of joins them together, makes them united with one another, right? The, the, the dew from Hermon. So Hermon was a mountain range that was uh, way north up in, it's north of the Sea of Galilee, over 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And the mountains of Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And so he's saying uh, the mountains way up north in Hermon are united with the mountains way down south in Jerusalem through the dew of Hermon that kind of joins them together and unites them together. Two distinct things that are different from one another that are joined together and unified together despite their being different from one another. <clears throat> That's how David understands and envisions unity among the people of God. It's not unity. It's not the unity and the uniting of two things that are exactly the same. It's the unity and the united of two things that are inherently different. Unity, not uniformity. Unity amidst diversity. People being together, but not necessarily being the same as one another. There's nothing particularly extraordinary about being united with people who are exactly like you. People who look like you. People who think like you. People who dress like you. People who, you know, vote like you. People who have all the same hobby horses and soapboxes that you do. To be united with people like that is not abnormal. It's normal. It's not extraordinary. It's just ordinary to be united with people who are identical to you. But for a community of people to come together and be unified despite the fact that they're different, despite the fact that some of them are rich and some of them are poor, some of them are young and some of them are old, some of them are 
poor, or some of them are white, some of them are black, some of them are Democrats, some of them are Republican. There's different ethnicities and nationalities, different preferences, different affinities, right? For a community like that to come together, uh, despite the fact that they're not the same, is extraordinary. That is, is counter-cultural. That's not natural, but rather that is supernatural, because that, that community that's coming together despite being different, they're showing that despite all of their little allegiances that they all have to all their different preferences, I like this, I like that, I, I am like this, and I am like that. We all have all of these a bajillion different allegiances. A community that comes together in spite of being different on them is showing that they have one singular common allegiance that transcends all of those bajillion little allegiances. Right? There's something higher, something better, something more important that transcends all of our preferences on all of those other things. And that's what's going to bind us together and unite us. We might, we might disagree on taxation, but we agree on the Trinity, and that's more important. We might disagree on immigration, but we agree on the divinity of Jesus, and that's more important. We might disagree about criminal justice reform, but we agree on the substitutionary atonement, and that's more important. We might disagree on climate change, but we agree on justification by faith, and that's more important. We might, you know, right, you, you name it, fill in the blank with any issue that's, that's not essential to salvation. We could disagree on that, but we do disagree, or we do agree on the person and work of Christ and his having saved us from the wrath of God, and that's more important. If a community says, we love Jesus, but you can only be a part of this community if you conform to this particular profile, age, race, socioeconomic status, education, political affiliation, if the entire group is the same across the board, then you'll never really be able to know what they are most devoted to. It might be that Jesus is their first love and that he's what's most important, or it might be that those other preferences and other affinities that they all share together are their first love, and that's what's most important. That's why I get so, that's why it's so discouraging to me when I, uh, you know, I I read a lot of books about church and about ministry and, and, um, you know, there's, there's books about church growth, and a lot of them kind of lead with, here's how to get more young people in your church, right? Here's how to get more young families to come to your church. The idea is that if the church is all old people, then, um, you know, it might not be able to survive once those old people, uh, you know, die. So you gotta, you got to rethink, you got to reimagine, you got to re-strategize, you got to get young people and young families into your church and do that by catering to their preferences, whatever you, whatever you have to do to get young people to come and stay. The problem is if you, I mean, same is true if you prioritize old people over it, but like if you only care about, if, you, if your goal, if your goal for your church is a homogenous group of young people, then you're missing out on everything, all of the benefits and all of the blessings that come from having older people in the the body of Christ with you. You're missing out on all of their experience, all of their perspective, all of their wisdom. And again, plug in any, right, if you have only people that are this age or that are from this neighborhood or that are from from this 
you know, walk of life or that have this belief about education or whatever it is, right? You're missing out on all of the, all of the benefits and all of the blessings that come from having a, a plurality of voices. The church doesn't need uniformity. The church needs unity. It needs diversity and it needs unity in the midst of that diversity. <clears throat> If you're, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, this is fairly, a fairly interesting concept to think about, but if you're, if you're a Christian here in America, Suffolk, Chesapeake, wherever you live, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you have more in common with a Christian farmer in Africa or a, a Christian elderly widow grandmother in China who's never spoken English before. You have, you have more in common with them by virtue of trusting in the same God, entrusting yourself to the same Savior, holding fast to the same gospel than you do with your next door neighbor who's your same age, race, has the same job as you, drives the same car that you do, right? Has the same clothes that you, that you wear, right? You have more in common with someone that uh, by all appearances you have nothing in common with because the thing that you share is the deepest, truest, most important thing ab- about you. And so a church is not a group of people who come together, kind of rally around any of those other small allegiances that we may have and insist that we have uniformity on them. A church is a a group of people who are united around the gospel, are united around the person and work of Christ, even though we are not necessarily identical and uniform on all of those other issues. So, unity is objectively good. Unity is experientially pleasant. Unity is not uniformity. Next point that we, can, that we can draw out here is that unity is what sets the church apart specifically for the task of serving God and doing ministry in the world. Unity is what sets the church apart for serving God and doing ministry in the world. Verse 2 says, unity is like oil on the head of, of uh, Aaron. It's running down his beard. It's running down under the collar of his robes. This is a reference to anointing the priest with oil in the nation of, of Israel. <clears throat> when God called Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, God called Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants to make up the priesthood. And in Exodus chapter 30, we see that the priesthood is set apart uh, for this holy task of doing ministry uh, in the, the nation of Israel, offering sacrifices, mediating between the people of God and God himself, But prior to being deployed to that task, uh, Exodus 30 says, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and you shall consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my anointing oil throughout your generations. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. So Aaron 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 and his descendants were called by God to a special task, a special responsibility. They were to administer the sacrifices and worship services in Israel preside over them. But before they do it, before they mediate between God and his people, represent God to the people, represent the people to God, they have to be anointed. 
We have to pour oil on your head, and that symbolizes your being set apart, holy, special, called by God for this special task that God has called you to. Now, Psalm 133 says that that anointing of oil that God called the priesthood to do in Israel is like, it's similar to, it's, a, it's an analogy for unity within the people of God. So, just like the priests had a ministry, a responsibility that they were called to, the church has a ministry and a responsibility that it's been called to, to make disciples of all nations and to teach them and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But just like the priests that had a special setting apart that they needed to do before they did their ministry that they were called to, the church has a special setting apart that needs to happen before they do the ministry that they were called to, and that is to be united together. The church's mission, its job, is to make disciples, but God sets the church apart for that mission and for that service by unifying them together around the person and work of Jesus. So if there's a church that were to say, we love God, we want to obey God, we want to be faithful to what God has called us to, we want to go out into the world and preach the gospel, we want to, you know, call people to Jesus, we want to see their lives changed by God's grace, we want to do all of that, but we don't want to get along with one another. Right? We are unwilling to get over the fact that we have these disagreements about other things. Disagreements that are causing us to break fellowship with one another and harbor resentment against one another and refuse to forgive one another and cut off communication with one another and treat one another badly. We love God. We want to serve God, but we refuse to be united with one another. That would be like a priest in Israel saying, I want to serve God. I want to administer the sacrifices. I want to walk around in the most holy place in the inner room of the temple, but I refuse to be ordained. I refuse to be set apart. I refuse to be anointed with oil. I'm just going to jump into the task of serving God without first being set apart by God for that task. Friends, if a priest in Israel did that, God would kill him. He did multiple times. Leviticus chapter 10, God kills Nadab and Abihu for, ser- for presuming to serve God on their terms instead of serving God on his terms the way that he has called them to, to do it. God calls his people to serve him, but God expects and demands that that service be done in accordance with how God has prescribed for it to be done. So if a church wants to do ministry and fulfill the mission of the church in the world without being unified and united around the gospel, they're effectively saying, God, we want to serve you, but we refuse to be set apart for the service that you've called us to in the way that you've called us to do it. God's, God's killed people for less than that. <clears throat> not to mention, so, but not only is uh, presuming to go about the mission of God in the world without first being set apart by God for that mission, not only is it uh, a, a violation of Scripture, but it just also doesn't make sense. How can the church have any credibility in the world to call people to God if that church, 
if the members of that church can't even get along with themselves, right? How can a church say, we want you to be reconciled to God and reconciled to others when that person is going to look at the church and say, you're not even... You're not even reconciled with your self, right? Like, you wouldn't take financial advice from a guy who's broke, who's made bad investments and had to declare bankruptcy. You wouldn't take marital advice from a person who's been divorced half a dozen times and his wife keeps calling him, calling the cops on him for domestic violence. So why would the world listen to a church that says, be reconciled to God and be reconciled to your neighbors when we cannot be reconciled with one another. That's what Jesus says in John 13. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the main way that the church is supposed to know who Christians are is that when they look at them, when they look at Christians being united together, they see love and unity rather than strife and conflict and disunity. So unity enables the Great Commission. Unity is what sets the church apart for service. Unity is, is good, it's pleasant. Unity is not uniformity. Unity sets us apart for service to God. Fifth, uh, unity is a gift from God. Right, verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. We've been looking at several books in the Old Testament over the last year or two, um, which kind of reinforce this idea that in an agrarian culture in Israel, rain was everything. That's what they cared about more than anything. That's what you need more than anything. If God doesn't bring rain, your, your family's going to die. Your nation is going to die. And so all of these nations were praying to their gods for rain. And Israel was praying to their God for rain. Like rain and dew from the heavens, which falls on the mountains and waters the crops and gives you water to drink and crops to eat. That was a gift from the Lord. And David is saying, just like that dew from heaven was a gift from God that you couldn't manufacture, you couldn't uh, will it into existence, so too unity is a gift from God. A farmer could work his fingers to the bone, but unless God gives the gift of dew and rain, the crops are going to die. A church can adopt any strategy that they want. They can try any artificial method, fad, flavor of the month that they want, but, but true unity is a gift from God that comes from the Holy Spirit of God as people repent of their sin and trust in the person and work of Jesus together as they, as they gather around the gospel together. <clears throat> so unity is good. Unity is pleasant. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is what sets us apart for service to God. Unity is a gift from God. And then lastly, unity is a precursor to eternal life in heaven. You see that in the last part of verse 3. For there, there in in unity, in the, the dwelling in unity that is good and pleasant, there is where the Lord has commanded blessing life forevermore. So so David is saying, in that act of being unified as the people of God, when you look at it, in there, intrinsic within it, you can see a glimmer of what we were created for and what we will be experiencing forever and ever in eternity. 
people being united together around the gospel despite their differences, despite their diversity. There's some sort of connection between that and the eternal life that we are going to experience in heaven. Because like it or not, every single person who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, every single person is going to be fully united together in, in heaven, even if they don't agree with you on everything. Heaven will be the place where Christian unity is finally actualized, right? Eternally and irrevocably, which means that <clears throat> if you're a Christian, right now in this life, you have a responsibility as best as you can, as far as it depends on you, to be reconciled to other believers and to live in Christian unity with other followers of Jesus because that's what's going to be happening in heaven anyway, right? During the eternal life that we're all looking forward to and anticipating, we're going to be fully reconciled to and united with other uh, believers. And so we should be leaning into it and anticipating it and cultivating it here and now. In heaven, we're going to be reconciled to other people anyway, so we should be working for it right now. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're not willing to pursue unity with other believers here and now, you're essentially saying the end for which God created the world, right? What God created me for and what I am ultimately journeying toward, which is heaven in heaven with God, I don't want that, right? I, I have an opportunity to recreate that in some sense right here, right now, by being united with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're unwilling to do that, then that is effectively saying that you don't want to go to heaven or that, you, that there's something about heaven that you find distasteful or that you're not interested in or that you think that that person that you're unwilling to be reconciled to is not going to be in heaven. That you think that they're, right? Uh, I'm, I'm so upset at them. I've, what they've done is so profoundly bad that I don't think that there's any possible way that they can be a regenerate believer. Both of which are pretty extreme statements, right? Saying that you don't want to be, saying that you don't want to be in heaven is an extreme statement. Saying that you don't think that someone else is going to be in heaven because of who they are, of what they've done is an extreme statement. And yet that's essentially what we're saying when we refuse to be reconciled to other believers. <clears throat> Which is why, as best as we can, we should work to not hold grudges. We should work against harboring resentment, refusing to reconcile to people. If, if there's a person that you are not reconciled to in Christian unity, then you should go to them. You should pray about going to them, repenting, apologizing for the sins that you've committed against them. If you don't know what they are, then you should ask them and listen when they tell you. You should give them an opportunity to repent to you and apologize for the sins that they've committed against you. If you don't know what those sins are, or if they don't know what they are, or if they're unaware of them, then you should tell them clearly and lovingly and graciously so that you can give them an opportunity to repent and so that you can forgive them. <clears throat> Friends, there was a time when you were not reconciled to God. There was a time when you did not have unity with God, when you were at enmity with God, and Jesus 
came to you at great cost to himself. He humbled himself. He laid down his life. He gave it up for you. He died on the cross so that you could be reconciled to him, so that you could be united to God. And Jesus is calling you to cultivate that same unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's calling you to go to them like he came to you. He's calling you to humble yourself like he humbled himself. He's calling you to lay down your pride like he did so that you might be reconciled to him just like you were reconciled to God. Unity in the church matters. It matters to God. Because unity is good, it's pleasant. It's what sets us apart for, for service to God. And it's ultimately where we're headed in eternal life in heaven. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to us, that you died for us, so that we could be invited into your presence reconciled to you to live in unity with you forever and lord we pray that you would help us now to be united with one another to dwell together in unity with one another for your glory and for our joy it's in jesus name that we pray amen